Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being here. It seems like it's been a while since I was sitting in the chair at this time. Things back in place the way they're supposed to be. And it's a busy day. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about the housing announcement made just about one hour ago. What does it actually mean for people in Vancouver who are looking for housing, in need of housing? Where will the permanent housing be built in the city? We're going to talk to the mayor of Vancouver. He's going to join us after the two o'clock news, so in the final hour of the program. But uh, until then, and at that point, there'll be lots of time for your feedback. We're also going to talk about rent being due. September 1st, rent for a lot of people due today. It is also the end of the eviction moratorium. The Vancouver Tenants Union has a new website, a new online tool to help people who are facing eviction. And we'll check in with them them at the bottom of the hour. And we're also going to talk about more Canadians wasting food. You might think it would be the opposite during a pandemic. Not according to the new research. Canadians wasting more food as they spend more time at home during this pandemic. But first, as we've been mentioning, a big announcement today having to do with housing, a plan for temporary housing, and eventually more permanent housing when it comes to tackling homelessness. So um, what I can tell you is that the temporary homes will be on Vernon Drive. They're um, uh, expected to be open next next spring, I believe. Um, and the others are in um, consultation with the City of Vancouver. It's on city-owned land. And uh, once those are um, identified, we'll certainly be working with the community to help them understand what's coming to their community and how we can work together to provide safe places for people who need them. That was Selena Robinson, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, at that announcement earlier today. Let's bring in Jeremy Hunka, a spokesperson with Union Gospel Mission. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I know you've uh, dealt with people who are in need of housing, people who don't have housing security. Uh, what is your first reaction to, well, first of all, we'll talk about this is the temporary the modular housing, 450 units coming by next spring to this location on Vernon Drive. Yeah, I mean, our immediate reaction to the announcement is cheering on the one hand and then still major concern on the other. I mean, the announcement for 450 units is great, but not great enough. It's not fast enough. It's almost like a crack of sunlight amid some darkness during the pandemic. I mean, look, it's a great step. And we immediately think of the 450 people, some that I may know who will eventually have a safe place to lay down and to be safe. Um, That will mean less suffering. It'll mean more recovery, less risk of people dying. And that's really good. But on the other hand, to put it super plainly, um, some of our homeless neighbors might not live long enough to see that support materialize. Uh, Stats show that people who are homeless die sooner, die more often, face immense challenges, um, many more challenges than those of us who are housed. So it's a good, great step. It's definitely a missing piece of the puzzle. Love it cheer it and at the same time not not enough uh, and it's also not and sorry i think i said 450 uh, the the temporary modular supportive units those units of vernon drive uh, that's 98 uh, units that are being built there uh, which that's isn't right. nearly the number of people that we see even if we look at strathcona park right now how many people are living there so what what is something else that could be done I mean, yeah, there are a number of other things that both the city and the province are doing uh, right now. I mean, you've got to look big picture. They are leasing hotel rooms. Um, they've announced the navigation centers. 
Um, they used community centers earlier in the pandemic, and they had been building, uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of uh, modular and supportive units. So those, I mean, big picture, there's some progress that is unfolding, but it's not in our at our perspective keeping pace with the need especially the need that's escalating during COVID-19 and the pandemic so what we you know what we really need is our thousands of units of housing that's ultimately the the end solution anything else uh, or anything short of that will mean that there's still hundreds if not thousands of people on our streets i mean we're talking in bc alone we're talking seven eight thousand people who are homeless right now at this moment how many people in this province? You know, seven or 8,000. That sounds like a lot more than what we've talked about in previous counts. I mean, in Metro Vancouver, the last homeless count put at about 3,600 just in Metro Vancouver. Estimates are, rate, are go up from seven to 8,000 across, across BC. And then, you know what, the hidden homeless is often not uh, factored into these numbers either and it's almost you know no matter you can look at study after study and there'll always be a different estimate of the number of people who are hidden uh, as homeless and those are people like sleeping on couches or you know trying to stay uh hidden while they're homeless and that number is is also very high so no this is a it's a it's a really big number there's a lot of people it can't be underestimated nor minimized this is this is a big problem uh there has been some progress that's been made. We've got to cheer that. We've got to uh, laud that. But we also need to label it as um, just a piece of the puzzle because we're, we're, we're really staring down a difficult, a difficult situation. And, and people who otherwise have promising futures, if they get through this, this, this hard time or get uh, some consistent supports, I mean, those, they're, uh, they matter. They're, and, and they're valuable. And I've seen people turn lives around in incredible ways. We just need to give them that chance. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm curious if you think when we talk about stories and we talk to Strathcona residents, uh, one resident was just on the Mike Smith show talking about people who live near that encampment who say there are people trying to break into their homes during the day in the light of day several times, uh, people doing drugs in their driveways that threaten them when they ask them to move along. We know Pete Fry, a city councillor, has been threatened. Does that give the people who, because we've also talked to people who have gotten into modular housing and say it turned their life around. It was the thing that saved them and now they have hope Uh, does that criminal element which has taken over part of that homeless encampment does that ruin it or turn people sour on trying to help those who genuinely need the help i think it there's a big risk that it turns people sour when things like that happen um we have to always remember that we can't take the most problematic vocal visible or demanding or in some cases you know, aggressive people in a group and and take them as a representation of everyone. I mean, it, I know so many people who uh, have went through extremely challenging times and uh, and came out of it. And they're great people. Some of them are I know, uh, you know, so I'm professors, uh, mortgage brokers. I mean, like incredible people who are now dedicating their lives to helping other people in incredible ways. And I think it's really, really dangerous to only focus on that. You know, the there there often is, especially I mean, and I'll the police, the police have said this themselves um, in 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 some of the homeless camps that have 
um, arisen, uh, we have a group of troublemakers that move into that area to prey and to target um, on those most vulnerable who are homeless. And so the homeless themselves are usually the most at risk. Um, we've got to remember them and their futures and not get uh, and not paint everyone with a giant brush because that is really unfair and uh, and limits and i think the public if if the public he only repeatedly hears that then they're less inclined to believe that there is hope we see it all the time like you said in the modular housing and the housing at ugm the programs here it, it's really amazing to watch that happen we need to hear about that more all right well jeremy we'll leave it there for today but thanks so much for talking about this announcement we'll talk to you again soon you bet. Thanks so much, Jill. We are going to continue talking about the housing announcement released earlier today. Modular housing, more permanent housing, although the details on the permanent housing still coming at a future date. So would love to get your take on that. If you didn't get through on the open line, give the buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ. You can always email me, jill at cknw.com. And Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart is going to join us following the 2 p.m. news today to talk a little bit more about the announcement and what that means when it comes to homelessness in the city. Speaking about housing, it is September 1st. That means for a lot of people, rent is due. And the Vancouver Tenants Union is putting together a new online tool to help people who are facing eviction. And steering committee member Vince Tout joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Vince, thanks so much. No, thanks for having me. Well, we've been talking a lot about rent, people being able to make the rent. It is September 1st, so a lot of people have rent due uh, today. Uh, the Vancouver Tenants Union has put together uh, an online tool for tenants. What exactly does that do? So, yes, we put together a tool called the uh, we are evictions tracking um, website. It's you can People can go to www.bcrentcrisis.ca. We're looking just to see, you know, let... Um, tenants self-report their evictions uh, because actually there is no organization, including the B.C. government, that tracks evictions in a systemic, uh, systematic manner. Um, so we will be tracking these evictions, seeing if we can link renters to advocacy organizations, housing supports, um, and also contact tenants if they want to help fight their evictions, right? Um, we, will not, we won't be able to respond to every eviction directly. There must be already hundreds kind of pouring in um but we will try our best to connect renters to the to the adequate advocacy organizations so as things stand right now then given with all of the measures that have been in place given the pandemic uh, so renters now as of september 1st have to pay their full rent and they should be working on if they haven't already uh, some kind of repayment plan if they didn't pay rent or their full rent in the last few months Exactly. It's it's uh, quite a tragic situation because these renters who are already affected by uh, unemployment, uh, the crashing economy, they're going to ha- not only have to continue to pay rent at their, their current uh, rate, but also pay back on top of that um, whatever they need to pay back through the repayment plan, right? So it's a, essentially a, a rent increase for the next year. Um, so, you know, a renter who is paying, let's say, $1,600, will have to pay an extra 600 per month in order to make up for the last eight months um, that they haven't been paying rent. Um, we're going to see a lot of evictions, a lot of people ending up homeless, a lot of people not knowing what to do when they can't pay that much. Um, and it's it's going to be bad. Like we, we do know that unemployment are at 11%. Um, so if people are struggling now, they're going to be struggling way more, um, you know, into the future. Uh, are you hearing even anecdotally about people being evicted? 
Yes, we are actually. Um, there's, you know, I'm working on a case right now. It's, um, it was an eviction that was in place prior to the pandemic, but the developer is a demo eviction case. Um, you know, Port Living, they, they essentially uh, put the eviction on hold um, indefinitely. And the tenants had some space to breathe. They didn't know what was happening. They weren't contacted by the, the, the developer for months. And then suddenly uh, their eviction is back and they have until the end of September to leave. Um, people are scared. People are, are, are worried about not being able to you know, have, have to choose between food and rent. Um, there's families uh, risking homelessness. Right? Um, it's, it's not looking good. Uh, and when so with the online form for people to go and document if they are being evicted is it a place where they're going mm-hmm. to be outing landlords as well or saying who the landlord is and who's doing the evicting so it is an option on our form to report who your landlord is um we are trying to map out um you know which landlords are going to be the serial evictors if there's patterns uh either geographically or between landlords about you know Maybe there's big sales happening, right? Because we do see that um, this is not only going to be an issue that affects, um, you know, folks that haven't been able to pay rent during COVID, right? Um, there will be, I think, massive transformations in, in the city uh, as developers and landlords uh, seek to, you know, make some quick cash, you know, renovate, demovict, uh, consolidate. Um, and yeah, like this, this is going to be a citywide phenomenon. Um, and so we're, we're trying to, map the dots because no one else is doing it. And do, do you think that there is a difference, though, when we're talking about a dem eviction or a rent eviction and we're talking about a company that, like the one you mentioned, uh, was doing this at the beginning of the pandemic, put things on hold, uh, has started up again, uh, different from, say, somebody who has a mortgage and rents out their basement suite, and if they're not getting the income from the basement suite, they can't pay the mortgage and take it to, to, the, to the point where they evict somebody. Definitely. We, we think that, um, you know, there is a big difference between the individual homeowner and these massive, massive landlords that are looking to speed up their timelines for development, uh, make some quick cash, right? We do think that there needs to be relief uh, all over, you know, for, for single family, uh, single home uh, families. Um, and, um, you know, there, 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 there does need to be relief on mortgages as much as it is for the average renter as well. Um, this needs, there needs to be extra pressure put on Premier Horgan, who said at the beginning of the pandemic that no one would lose their homes due to COVID. Uh, we do not think that is true at all. The, the reports that we're getting in already through our survey and uh, also you know, um, through our evictions tracking um, website is showing that people will lose their homes. And we need to track that. We need to figure out what's going on here uh, so we can put extra pressure on the government to stay true to the word. And do you see people uh, being helped when we've, we've talked a lot about CERB with CERB ending and people in many cases transitioning to the new EI plans or the new ways of getting EI and the relaxed rules for EI. Do you see that working in uh, that it will help people at least for the short term be able to pay their rent? So in the short term, we do think that like CERB, while it's still, it's been extended a tiny bit, um, you know, of course, like this will, we don't know how much longer, uh, CERB will last, like if they will extend it longer. And again, it doesn't seem like, like jobs are coming back. And if the jobs that are coming back are service work, uh, really essentially frontline work, people are risking infection as well. Um, we do think that, you know, as much as EI and CERB and, and kind of like the recent changes, uh, 
is something that's better than nothing. Uh, it will not be enough to to, to you know hold the dam of this this coming uh, evictions crisis. Um, it's it's really just a, another month, uh, and hopefully people have saved up. But again, it's like people are going to be essentially through the repayment plans. Um, getting a, a, a rent increase at a time when, you know, unemployment's at 11%. Um, it, does, it doesn't add up. We're not, we're not going, we don't have enough. We need more support and more relief. Uh, and we need to extend the evictions ban. There's, there's no need to be evicting people right now, especially at these kind of large developments. Um, there's no need to be, you know, building luxury cafes, luxury condos at this moment when people, you know, the, the average renter, the average tenant is struggling to even survive. All right, Vince, we'll leave it there uh, for today. We're right out of time, but thanks for making time for us. I appreciate it. No, thank you so much, Jen. Thanks for being with us. Well, you might think with more people across the country, across the world, really, spending more time at home during COVID-19, eating more meals at home, likely cooking more at home, we would be wasting less food than pre-pandemic. But that is not the finding of a new report that takes a look at how much food Canadians are wasting. In fact, quite the opposite. And joining me to talk about these findings is Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Uh, So what did you look at as far as Canadians and food waste and the pandemic? (laughs) Well, we looked at a lot of things. Of course, we uh, compared uh, current behaviors uh, versus uh, old behaviors pre-pandemic, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, we are cooking more, and uh, we just wanted to know whether or not um, the pandemic has made us better environmental stewards. So last week, we actually released a study on plastics, And today we're releasing a study on food waste. Uh, We wanted to know whether or not people are wasting more or less food since the beginning of the pandemic. And as I said off the top, people would probably, if you had to guess, you would say, oh, we're probably wasting less. But that's not what you found. No, actually, we did run a survey, like a pop survey today, asking people, well, here's our results. We're actually... I believe that uh, Canadian households are wasting 13.5% more food than before the pandemic. And uh, so far, during our poll shows that uh, 57% of Canadians aren't surprised by the results. So in volume, there's, there's two things. Volume-wise, we're generating more waste. There's a logic to that. We're doing more stuff at home. We're cooking more. We're actually bringing more food at home because we're not going out as much. Uh, Proportionally, though, I actually think it's the opposite. Proportionally, I believe, we believe as a team, that households are actually generating less waste because we're becoming better inventory managers. We're eating our leftovers. We're more aware of what's in our cupboards and and fridge uh, when we show up to the grocery store. So we're more disciplined. And, of course, food service. Lots of restaurants are idle right now, buffet-style restaurants. Uh, They generate a lot of waste, and they're idle right now. So it's actually, overall, we believe, despite the fact that the volume is up when it comes to households, overall, we believe that food waste is, is actually dropping.
Hmm, which sounds like a positive thing. That sounds uh, like yeah, what we want to do. Uh, did you look at, at the types of food? Like you said, people maybe are eating more leftovers because if you're working from home, you know it's there. Maybe you don't want to waste it. But is it also, uh, are we throwing things away because the expiry dates are there? A freezer burn. Uh, we've, we've bought these things. We had high hopes of making these dishes, but never did. Does that play into it? Well, it, absolutely. Of course, uh, the, the expiry dates are there to scare us, right? <laughs> so we can throw things away and buy new stuff. That's really the model we have. Uh, if you don't trust your senses, uh, and perhaps if your immune system is compromised, you may not want to take uh, the risk. But, I mean, the bottom line is that a lot of a lot of products are still being thrown out, and they're still safe and, and very much edible. Uh, so that actually, that threshold has gone up. So more people are actually throwing food away, even though it's still good to eat. The other thing that really shocked us <laughs> is the number of people throwing food away, believing that the food is contaminated with COVID-19. Huh. What yeah. was that number? And the highest percentage is in B.C., Really? I, I'm afraid to ask. What is the number? So the average, the Canadian average is 10%. So 10% of Canadians actually have thrown food away believing it was contaminated with, uh, with COVID. In BC, it's 14%. Huh, that is a bit yeah. troubling, especially since our health officer, Dr. Henry, has addressed that issue. She addressed it very early on in the pandemic, not only talking about packaged food, but also takeout, saying the reason that takeout restaurants were allowed to remain open was because there was no sign that it was being passed from person to food. And she was very clear saying that it didn't pass. There, were no, there was no evidence that food carried it. Yeah, Dr. Henry had a lot on the go <laughs> every single day. I mean, she had to tackle a lot of things at once, and perhaps that message didn't come through. Uh, both Quebec and B.C. Um, have a 14% uh, rate when it comes to throwing food away because uh, it believe it was believed to be contained by, by COVID. And I, I would say I don't think it's Dr. Henry's fault in B.C. or anybody else. The CFIA was nowhere to be found during this pandemic, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They should have been the one telling people over and over again, don't throw food away. The science is not there. There's, there, there's, it's not the virus is not like Salmonella E. coli. It doesn't mm -hmm. multiply on food or in food. It doesn't. A virus, as soon as it lands on a, on a surface or on a food product, it dies eventually. Right, because we even had reports in the in the beginning of the pandemic of people that were either leaving their groceries outside or leaving them to sit for a couple of days or washing them before. We're talking about people scrubbing down cereal boxes before bringing them in, but I hadn't heard or didn't realize that the percentage was so high of people throwing it away. Yeah, are, are you still cleaning your groceries when you walk in the door? <laughs> I never did. <laughs> I'm, I probably go too far the other way and not, not doing that I'm, stuff. I think it was around uh, early June when the Center for Disease Control in the United States basically made a statement saying this probably is not necessary now, given what we know. We, we went into this pandemic not knowing much about this virus. I mean, there was little science to this. And so we were extremely careful, and I think we had to, because we didn't know what we were dealing with. Now we have a better idea but going into the fall with September, 
I, I, I don't think it would be appropriate for anyone to throw food away thinking it was contaminated with COVID. There were reports coming out of China, I think it was three weeks ago, uh, but those reports were questionable at best. Uh, I, I think it was really more about politics than anything else, but I think you should trust your, your food, the safety of your food, if you, if you, when you come back from the grocery store. And do you think these numbers are based also on the shopping habits? And again, kind of going back to the beginning of the pandemic, when you when there was that huge run on the grocery stores, the food that was that the shelves that were empty were things like pasta, pasta sauce, preserved foods that you could put in the pantry and not think about it. You could still get produce and, and that which made me think, okay, people aren't cooking. They're not preparing foods and, and either freezing it or preserving it. They want stuff that is already, that is already, that's already been done. Uh, whereas produce, you do tend to, I, I will, I'm guilty. I throw it away because I put it in the fridge and it goes bad. Is it the type of food we're buying and that's why we're seeing waste? Well, yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the center of the store were super popular. Uh, the, the ultra processed food or the processed foods were popular because we, we were scared. We wanted comfort food. We wanted food to be prepared in advance. We didn't know what was going to happen. So sales were way up at the center of the store, but slowly over the last six months, some of that business actually uh, got transferred from the center to the periphery where produce and meats are. Produce is a problem when it comes to food waste because it's work to preserve. Meat, you just throw it in the freezer and we're good. With produce, you can't really throw that head of head of uh, salad or that cauliflower or that celery into the freezer. You have to process. You have to do something with it, and that's why typically produce is the worst when it comes to food waste. So, and what does this tell us about our habits, or should we be concerned about this? If you're throwing away food, but you're composting it or you're putting it in the green bin, you're not putting it into the garbage. Is it a problem? Uh, of course it is, because uh, you're not giving it a purpose, uh, a good purpose. But what we're, all, we're also noticing, and this is our next report, uh, a lot more people are starting to to uh, take on the entire, I would say, green cycle of their food. So they actually walk into the door with food. They'll prepare it. They'll take ownership of the cooking process. They'll start to garden. They'll grow their own. They'll, and right now, a lot of people are canning. And they're preserving their food that they've grown. And also, they're, they'll be composting way more. And so, so you can see that really Canadians are starting to really take ownership of the entire food cycle, uh, much more so than before the pandemic. All right. Uh, Interesting numbers. Uh, Sylvain, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for being with us. We are going to talk more about the housing announcement, getting a lot of calls to the buzz line uh, about uh, some solutions to the issues specifically in Vancouver, but outside of Vancouver proper as well. We'll talk about that in the final hour of the program. Right now, I am joined by Jake Fuss, who is an economist at the Fraser Institute, to talk about uh, some new research out of that think tank, taking a look at what the average Canadian family spends when it comes to taxes. And that number compared to what Canadians are spending on things like housing, clothing, and food combined. Jake, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I know the the numbers get put out, I think, yearly. Uh, So when we talk about the number, it sounds huge when we say 42.6%. How do you come up with that as far as, is it all of the taxes people pay, or how do you come up with that figure? 
Yes, that's right. Um, this is a study that we do every year. Um, we know it's challenging for Canadian families to calculate all the various taxes they pay because we have things like payroll taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, fuel taxes, and so on. Um, so we try to provide a calculation for the total tax bill for them. In 2019, we found the average Canadian family paid almost $39,000 in taxes, or just under 43% of their annual income. And how does that compare to, like you said, you do this every year. Are we seeing that number increase as far as the total tax bill? Yes. So we have seen um, fluctuations over time, but the general trend over time has been that the tax bill is growing for average Canadian families. Um, So if we, you know, look, for example, back in 1961, um, the tax bill was only about 33.5% back then. Obviously, a lot has changed since then, but what we have seen is this general increase over time where basic necessities are consuming less of your income, but taxes are now consuming more of your income as time progresses. And my guess is, and this probably oversimplifies it, it's not that basic necessities are costing less, it's that we're paying more in taxes. Yeah, so that's a a good observation. So the cost of basic necessities like food, clothing, and shelter, they are increasing over time, but they're consuming less of your overall income as a percentage. Um, Whereas in in comparison, taxes are also increasing over time, but they're consuming a greater percentage of your income. Um, So what we are now seeing, you know, is that basic necessities are consuming about, you know, a third of your income, whereas taxes are consuming about 43%. And so this dynamic has kind of flipped since the 1960s, where basic necessities consumed over 50% of your income. And what would you say to the argument then, uh, people that saying, yes, our, our tax bills are high on whatever level of government you're looking at, so we do pay a lot, but we get a lot in return? Well, absolutely. I mean, taxes do pay for important public services, so that's an important consideration. But we also need to consider where the money is going and how effective that spending is. Um, if we look at healthcare spending, for example, this has grown considerably in recent years, but our wait times are quite long especially in comparison to other universal healthcare countries like Canada. So, you know, it's really about each Canadian evaluating the quality of services they're receiving and weighing in against how much they pay in taxes. Ultimately, Canadians can decide for themselves if they're getting good value for their tax dollars. Right, because if you use healthcare as an example, then saying, okay, I pay a lot of taxes, a lot of those tax dollars go to healthcare. But on the flip side of that, if I get sick, I can go to my doctor, I can go to the hospital, I can have a surgery if I need it, I can get the treatment I need. And if that's the trade off, then it's worth it. I guess what you're kind of hinting at too is if that means that after I pay this amount in tax and I still have to wait on a wait list for a year and a half, I'm not really getting a lot of bang for my buck. Yeah, I mean, healthcare is a good example. Um, you know, there's some research from some of my colleagues where they show that Canada actually ranks second in healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP among 28 other OECD countries that all have universal healthcare. But despite this high level of spending, you know, Canada's healthcare system performs relatively poor. Um, we rank near the bottom for the number of doctors. We're 26th out of 28 countries. And we also rank quite poor for hospital beds. We rank 25th out of 26 countries as well. And we have some of the longest wait times in the developed world. So, you know, just simply, um, you know, examining some of these facts, uh, spending doesn't necessarily correlate with um, higher quality services, 
we really need to look at, you know, the bang for the buck and what we're getting in return for that high level of spending or high level of taxation. And are you able to put the numbers out or get a clear picture of the actual numbers of the taxes paid uh, based on as you get to the higher salaries? Uh, we often hear about loopholes. Uh, we've, we hear about uh, people in that very wealthy bracket finding ways to avoid paying the really high taxes at that point. So do you get a clear picture when there might be those that maybe aren't paying their fair share? Um, that's not something we specifically look um, at it in this um, particular study. Um, what we do, you know, there are certainly concerns over tax evasion and tax avoidance over time. Um, but, you know, when we've examined other instances of raising high personal income taxes, um, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have incentive effects for high income individuals to start avoiding some of those taxes. Um, so that's something you see, you know, even with um, the, the federal government increasing that top personal income tax rate to 33% back in uh, 2016. Um, it doesn't necessarily generate as much revenue as people think because there are behavioral effects from tax evasion avoidance, but also incentive effects where people might choose to work less or they might choose to you know, alter their behavior in certain s- circumstances. So it's not something that we necessarily look at in this study, but it is something um, that we've been examining kind of over time and, and trying to stay up on. And do you look at how taxes might be passed down in that to, to talk more about healthcare or just something that's changed in BC? If we've gone from a system of MSP where people paid that, to either your employer deducted it from your check or you paid it out of pocket, that shifting over to the employer health tax, are you able to still calculate then the if these even though it's the employer paying it, how that tax might be passed on to the actual family? Uh, yes. So we do include uh, payroll taxes in our calculation. And as you mentioned in BC, now that they're moving from that MSP um, premiums over to the employer um, taxes, this actually doesn't have as much of a drastic impact as you might think. Um, this is actually still a burden for um, average British Columbian families, because what research shows is that um, whoever the tax is imposed on, whether it's the employer or the employee, it's still passed on to employees in the form of lower wages. Um, so that we've seen empirical research over, over the time that payroll taxes do impose that burden on uh, families. It doesn't necessarily matter who you think you're putting that tax on. It still gets passed on to employees and families um, in that form of lower wages or possibly even lower employment. All right, uh, Jake, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, though, for walking us through the numbers today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, as you know, there was an announcement earlier today, the province partnering with the city of Vancouver. The plan is to build 450 new supportive homes for people who are homeless, 98 temporary modular supportive homes in the 1500 block of Vernon Drive would be built if approved, and then more homes built at a future date on city-owned land. And Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for joining us, Mayor. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I think everybody can agree. This sounds like a great plan. It is something that is desperately needed in the city. Uh, But there is this sense of we need more immediate action. And I just want to play for you a a quick comment from Katie Lewis, who's a Strathcona area resident. And she was speaking earlier today on the Mike Smith show and responding to this announcement. 
this is good, but it's not nearly enough and it's not soon enough. It's really not going to address our immediate need in Strathcona right now, which is honestly, there's, um, there is a disaster unfolding. And in any other country, 400 precariously housed people um, that are in kind of states of mental distress, this would be dealt with immediately. And while I'm always pleased to hear about these efforts and I'm pleased to hear that they're supportive housing, which I think is very important, um, uh, I don't think it does anything for the day-to-day lives of people in Strathcona. So, Mayor, how do you respond to that? Good news that this announcement was made today, but there's a disaster that nobody is responding to. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand the stress of people uh, in the Strathcona neighborhood that, uh, you, you know, are, are living beside this camp. And I have met with local residents and trying to adjust our response to, to meet their needs. So, for example, in talking with uh, Police Chief Adam Palmer, we've, uh, you know, there's been some adjustments in terms of policing in the area. And so people will notice um, more police, uh, you know, patrolling their neighborhoods. Um but uh, in the end, the only thing that homes and homelessness is homes. And so today's announcement, uh, you know, it's a, it's a two-phase uh, approach to housing. The uh, modular ho- housing units that you'd mentioned will be up and running uh, by the spring of next year. And then the permanent modular uh, housing will be coming on sites uh, for a total of 450 units. So, um, you know, what I would take people back to is is Oppenheimer Park and this time last year we would have been talking about Oppenheimer and now that park is um, being restored and the folks who are living there are housed now and that came through a partnership uh, working with the province and that's what we're doing I talked with the housing minister again today so we're we're trying to do the best we can with the resources we have but uh, housing does take time and um, also, uh, we we need help from the federal government. I think the province and city are kind of going flat out here, but we need the federal government to come on board like they, they said they, they would. Uh, Oppenheimer Park, though, granted, it's still not open to the people that would like to use it as a park. Not everybody that was in Oppenheimer is currently housed. Some people tried uh, housing, living in hotels. It didn't work out. Others chose not to. Uh, that's not a solution. That's, that's suggesting that every time a tent city pops up in a park, leave it for a couple of years, then build housing. That's not a solution. That's not what happened there at all. I mean, what happened at Oppenheimer was most of those folks have uh, ended up in housing. Uh, There is a temporary, uh, you know, leasing of hotels and, and I'd say some bumps along the way, but really that is the the model for this. There was quite a lot of damage in the park as well. So the park board is restoring that now. So uh, that's why the fence remains. I was just down there the other day and that's coming along nicely. But, you know, it's like any housing situation. It does take time to, to uh, put up housing at, at the announcement today. I mean, when we total what the provincial government and the city have combined on here, uh, we've, this announcement is about uh, a total of about 1,500 units in total, which is a lot. And I think we were doing quite well before COVID hit. And everybody has to remember we're in a pandemic. And so what's happened is, um, you know, our, our our shelters have to be thinned out because of physical distancing. So a shelter that once held 60 people can now hold about 20. Uh, the single-room occupancy hotels in the city, there's about 7,000 of those units. They are no longer uh, double or triple bunking in there. It, it has to be physically distant. And so this has forced a large number of people onto our streets, which I know all of us uh, see as, you know, the, through a compassionate lens, as this is very, very tough on these folks uh, as is the uh, opioid epidemic that is 
you know, causing many folks to lose their lives. So I'm very grateful to the province for their announcement today and talking to the housing minister, there's more to come. So, uh, again, these units, uh, some of them up and running by uh, spring of next year is very good news. Uh, you talk about police enforcement, and yes, I think we can all agree it's a, it's extremely tough if somebody is dealing with addiction, if somebody is dealing with mental health. We have people living in Strathcona Park that are threatening people in that neighbourhood. They are shooting up in their driveways and threatening them when they are asked to be moved along. So are police enforcing that? You know, we have a policy here in the city of uh, that we don't uh, arrest for possession of drugs. We essentially have a decriminalization of, of drugs here in the city, and because that doesn't work. Uh, so what we have to do is find these people housing and support, and that's what we're working on. There really is no other solution. I know it's tough, but I'm going to have to ask people to be patient uh, and compassionate, and we're, we're we will redistribute uh, police resources as we can to make sure that these neighborhoods, uh, you know, people are feeling safe in their neighborhoods. Uh, and I'm having a review with the police chief on Thursday about this. Is there also a policy then of, of not enforcing uttering threats? Because I would think that threatening to gouge somebody's eyes out is a crime. Yeah, I mean, the way, you know, that would have to be reported and investigated. And that's uh, so. What I would encourage people to do if they are, if they see a crime that's in process is is to call nine one one, and we have a very good response time here with the VPD. Uh, and if it's something that they've seen uh, but don't have evidence to, to suggest to the police, they should call the nine pol- non police uh, emergency call line to report that. So, you know, uh, I understand that people are are feeling, uh, you know, this isn't the situation anybody wants to be in. But uh, we're working to resolve it, and the way to resolve it is to look at Oberheimer Park as an example of, of a successful resolution of a, of a tough situation. And that's um, what we're working on right now. And with all due respect, Mayor, I get what you're saying, but it's not just Oppenheimer Park and it's not just Strathcona Park. We hear more and more, we experience more and more garbage on all the streets of the city. There are needles. Uh, we've had people walk out their front doors, switch on their cell phone video and and see needles everywhere. Garbage on the streets. People yeah, well, saying I'd the city to is going to hell. That. Look, I mean, I live, I live down in the Yaletown area. My wife and I walk around by the new Howard Johnson Hotel. We were down there yesterday morning in Emory Burns Park. Not a single needle. Uh, streets were looking good. I mean, I do this because, you know, it's my job to look around. And I really think we have to make sure that we're being accurate in our, our depiction of what's happening. I know people are upset when they see a particular instance, but in terms of a widespread overall decay of the city, I would totally uh, disagree with that. Well, I walk around my neighborhood too, and I see needles in the schoolyard every morning when I walk my dog. Last time I walked by the Granville Street Bridge, I saw a small tent city with a clothesline set up. I mean, are those things okay? You know, it is, it's how we deal with this. It's like uh, the solution to homelessness is new homes. We've announced uh, 450 of those today, which is great, and we're going to keep going. But really, uh, if you go the other way with enforcement, you know, I don't think that path takes you anywhere, that you have people endlessly cycling through uh, the justice system where really all their, their their main problem is is they don't have anywhere to live. And so this is this is the approach we're working on. And we do try to distribute resources, you know, sanitation uh, services and those types of things and needle pickups when we identify a problem area. So I would say for people 
that uh, see this is to make sure you're calling 311 to report it, and then our engineering and cleaning services can respond as quickly as possible. Do you think that it's more of an issue in Vancouver in that if you go to Toronto, Calgary, Montreal, other cities in this country, it doesn't seem like... Have you been there lately? Yeah, I was in Toronto earlier, uh, exactly one month ago. Right, okay. So I talk to mayors across the city, uh, across the country and around the country. Everybody's feeling this because of COVID. Everybody's shelters are are overflowed because of the physical distancing. Uh, We're all feeling financial stress. So all, all cities are feeling the same pressure. Uh, and so this is why we need a national response. And that's why we're hoping, uh, you know, for funding for housing from the, from the, uh, from the federal government, uh, both the long-term housing, but also the emergency shelter support that, that you're talking about that would make it a big difference here. Um, and so, you know, we're all neighbors in this city and we're all under stress. Like we're all under stress with COVID. It's, it's really dropped uh, you know, it's, it's really put a lot of us in, in difficult situations, especially those that are living on the margins. So what, what I'm hoping the city to do, we'll, we'll come together, we'll be compassionate, and we'll find a way through this. Um, but, but uh, you know, criminal enforcement is, is not going to help us out of this either. In fact, we know this from the U.S. experience, is that it just, you just throw tons of money at it, uh, at the issue, and, then, and nothing is really resolved. So the only way out of this is to uh, first provide temporary housing to get folks directly off the street and then longer-term permanent housing. And that, again, with the announcement today of 450 units, that's a big deal. Uh, so basically the message then to Strathcona residents, residents that maybe don't feel safe in their neighbourhood, just, what, endure it until the housing is built? No, like I just said, we've, we're redistributing police resources for those neighbourhoods that are under particular strain. And I think if you talk to Strathcona residents, they will see, and I've talked with them myself, they, they've seen an increased presence in the neighborhoods that are hardest hit. But meanwhile, we have to, we have to get uh, temporary housing for these folks to get them off the, get them off the streets and on the parks. And it's exactly, I mean, we, I had the same conversations <laughs> with, with you guys last year about Oppenheimer Park. And we've resolved that we've resolved that issue, restoring the park, and that will be back to a normal park operating, uh, you know, in the coming months. But the way we did it was by working uh, with the provincial government to secure the resources we needed. There really is no other solution. So uh, the best thing folks can do is to help me out, is to call your MLAs, but more importantly, call your MPs and say, where is the help from the federal government here? Like, where is, you know, the, the province acquired three hotels to uh, help get folks up the street. The federal government can do the same thing. And uh, that, that is really the only answer to the solution. So that's what I'm working on every day. And we had a good announcement today of 450 units, which I'm really happy with, which adds to our total now of 1,500. So, um, you know, uh, again, meet with the chief on Thursday. We review the crime stats and see where, where hotspots are. And, uh, of course, you know, we have one of the best police uh, services in the world, so we'll adjust as we can. All right, uh, Mayor, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for your time to talk about this. No problem.